I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. And thank you for listening to Cauldron. I'm Cullen, and today's episode's a little different from our normal long format. Today, I wrote a fictional account of the Battle of Nicopolis for our Patreon subscribers, and I wanted to share this with everybody so that you can see what uh, what you are missing on the Patreon. We will return in two weeks to the normal format when we cover the Battle of Stamford Bridge, but in the meantime. Enjoy this. I had a lot of fun writing it. It was actually a, it was really, really cool experience to write. And we'll be putting out more of these on a regular basis for the Patreon subscribers. All right. Enjoy. It looked like it would be a quick day after all. The mighty warrior kings of both East and West Christendom had rushed into the council tent and decided something. Raulette of Foix could tell whatever they had agreed on was by no means unanimous. The bushy-bearded Hungarian king had his head down and it seemed to be shaking in unspoken dissent. Of course, as merely a knight under John of Nevers, the one-day Duke of Burgundy, Rowlett was not close enough to see the King of Hungary's face. The foreign lord seemed downcast, though, and for the life of him, Rowlett couldn't understand why. The crusade that they had all joined had been called for by the Pope himself, and even the impostor in Avignon had agreed. To Rowlett, it had seemed like a hell of a way to get to heaven. See the world, make some money... Kill the infidels. For a man born in the foothills of the Pyrenees, life could be much duller. The trip, though, was a bastard, but, of course, getting anywhere, let alone halfway across the world, was going to be a bastard. As the mob of fighting humanity shuffled and plotted westward across Europe, it grew. Everywhere that the Crusades stopped along the way, men joined. With each new city or kingdom that they passed through, there appeared to be a new language. Raulet was fluent in French, Spanish, and Basque. He even had a little of the hated English from a fisherman his sister secretly had fancied. But the German tongue sounded loud and harsh. Beyond the Rhine, everything was shouted and angry to this son of the beautiful, calm Côte d'Azur. The trip became much smoother once the Danube was picked up. Some bright accountant had realized most of the supplies could be floated along, saving time, money, and lots of peasants from a hungry winter. 
As the summer passed on, Rowlett had heard more tongues than he could possibly dream of understanding, let alone learning. The crusade was finally in its last leg. The army had reached the Balkans. As the crusaders from the west teamed up with the eastern forces of Hungary and King Sigismund, they moved through the Balkans and had some early close-run fights and some sieges in Stratsmere and Wallachia. These were good for morale. It put some money in the pocket and experience in the muscles. Rowlett had come to the Holy War unbloodied, but he had finally used his weapons in anger. He found labor in his fields had made him strong, and training with his father's bannermen had made him deadly. When the kings and princes had decided to move the army to the city of Nicopolis, a city not far from poor, stranded, and beset Constantinople, Rowlett was excited to get into action. Now the hated Turks would have French lances to deal with. No wonder they had taken all the land in the Balkans and around Constantinople. One just had to look at the silly tribes and lordlings of the east that they were facing. No, Rolot thought as he gently spurred his mount into the ready position. Sad King Sigismund had no reason to worry today. Looking out across the slightly upward-sloping field, Rowlett could see the Ottoman light horse, the Akinji. His confidence turned into outright contempt. These men looked no more fearsome than a band of brigands and bandits. As Rowlett tried to shake the sweat from his brow, being unable to reach it with his gloved fingers, he realized what a blessed moment this was. He, a twenty-year-old Rowlett of Foix, son of Simon, Lance of the Duke of Burgundy, would help break the Ottomans forever. The rows of metal-encased men and horses in front of Rowlett burst forth, like they had been penned in by some unseen dam. One, two, three, four, and then his own body was lurching into action. Rowlett had named his massive destroyer La Loupe. The red and gold-swathed steed needed no guidance. The horse's hooves pounded away at the earth as if they ate the very dirt and were suddenly famished. La Loupe could see that the pace was being set by the front line and matched so that the rest of the Western Knights were right alongside. So many banners and so much color. The sight was beautiful and dizzying to Rowlett's eyes. Never had he seen such vibrant and pulsing, such vigorous life. And the noise was deafening. A rolling, continuous pounding of the earth. The very sound of death and Christ on the move to meet the Turk. To a gallop, the western heavy cavalry closed the distance between themselves and the Ottoman light cavalry quickly. As he got closer, Rowlett realized how poorly armored the Akinji were. Nothing in the way of chain or plate mail did he see on mount or rider. The swarthy, raven-haired horsemen, now only a hundred yards away, looked fancy in their furs and braids, but Rowlett knew they could not hold. They would be crushed by the sheer weight of French and German steel about to crash into them. At fifty yards, Rowlett doubted himself. 
None of the Akinji had moved, and some had even felt brave enough to fire off a few arrows. He understood now why they were known as the Deliler, or crazies in their own tongue. At 25 yards, the Turkish cavalry formation splintered. In a blur of color, the lightly clad men on their small, speedy horses had raced off to the left and right of the battlefield, leaving the knights in possession of the base of the enemy slope. An easy victory for Christ, thought Rowlett. And then something strange happened. Instead of using the momentum of a victorious charge to swat away the puny Ottoman infantry on the slope, Rowlett saw men dismount. Accepting the Turkish surrender seemed absurd, but so did the idea any knight would willingly expose himself by getting off his horse a mere spear throw from the enemy horde. Using Laloupe's vast bulk to nudge and push his way forward, Rowlett finally saw what was bringing the front rank of knights to the ground. Running along the base of the slope, as far as he could see in each direction, were thick wooden spikes. The spikes had been driven into the ground and then sharpened. The stakes were thick as a man's waist and at the perfect angle and height to slide right through a horse's heart. Regularly spaced, the field fence was the ideal thing to halt the powerful French charge dead in its tracks. The wooden spikes also gave the now milling about and somewhat puzzled French a hard choice. Turn around and slink back to the safety of the main army, or break up the fence and continue on. Rowlett realized immediately that, though simple, the choice was far from easy. The foreign bastards... The Hungarians and other allies had barely moved, so the knights would need to go back to where they had started. This while under constant harassment on the flanks and in the rear from the Turkish light cavalry. If the decision were to press on, the stake fence would need to be removed while within enemy striking distance. At any moment, the infantry in front and the Akinji on the flanks would be able to swarm the dismounted and stationary knights. Of course, the decision was not Rowlett's to make. Suddenly, a cheer rang from somewhere close to the fence. John of Nevers, Rowlett's lord and the leader of the Western Knights, had made his decision. The men of France and of God would fight on. The knights on the left and right of Rowlett turned to face outwards, guarding their flanks. The men in front dismounted and kicked and pulled at the stakes, yanking them down. Soon gaps began to form, and the Duke issued orders. The dismounted were to widen the holes, then stand aside. Once the men still mounted had charged past, the men on the ground were to follow on foot. Rowlett felt his heart pounding and his muscles tighten as the breach in the fence before him opened. He heard his Duke scream, Maintenant! Leloup danced around and threw the stakes in front of him, then a crackle of speed and they were alone. More so than ever before, Rowlett felt he was one with Leloup. The heaving beast beneath him moved like he had run up this slope a thousand times. Rowlett looked backwards and glimpsed the other knight some fifty yards behind. 
He dragged his helmed chin forward and saw the Ottoman infantry in front were upon him, or he was upon them. Instinct or training made Rowlett twitch his lance just low enough to catch the first man he saw in the groin. The momentum pushed the pierced man into the others behind him. Before the lance had fully run through the victim, Rowlett had dropped the weapon, knowing it would only hinder him. Laloup drove the charge home as far as he could, then pulled up and used his hindquarters to pummel over four men. His powerful thighs took several cuts and blows, but the colossal horse felt none of them. While Laloup made a fan-shaped dent in the front ranks of men, Rowlett dragged his sword from its sheath. Halfway through the circle Laloup was making, Rowlett saw the others coming. It seemed all of France was joining the fight. Scarlet, gold, deepest blue and robin's egg, white, orange, and pink flew through the sky. Every color imaginable sped towards him as if a rainbow was skimming the very ground itself. When the crash came, Rowlett had turned back to the Turks, and he did not so much see the knights hit the infantry as he felt them hit. With a shuddering thud, like a thousand shovels slapping against an old root, the French knights hit home. Having little, in many cases no armor, the Ottoman infantry had no way of defending themselves. Steel met bone over and over and over. Rowlett sliced down on his left, cutting a man's chin off. Before he could see what happened to the poor soul, Rowlett felt his left leg and thigh getting pounded upon. A man with the most luxurious mustache Rowlett had ever seen was hammering away at his leg with a gurz. The heavy metal mace at first was just an annoyance, but Rowlett could feel the metal plate buckling. As Rowlett yanked his sword round to deal with this new threat, Laloup reared his legs. Rowlett hated when the horse did this. The intent was to clear some space, but Rowlett was trained to aim for the belly of a rearing horse, and he knew that the enemy was prepared to do the same. Laloup's sheer strength and size made approaching him difficult and dangerous. None of the enemy infantry in this case dared to go near the rearing horse. As his forelegs came back down to the ground, Rowlett had found the bastard with the mace and put his sword through the man's eye. Being the first man in the charge to hit, the second wave had seethed past and Rowlett had a moment to rest. The heat was enough to make a man question his faith. The sweat that had been annoying at first was now constant. Rowlett did not bother to shake his head as it would take too much energy. He was exhausted, but the day was far from over. Looking up the slope, Rowlett saw that the knights were winning. A swath of devastation and carnage lay in the mailed men's path. Everything the knights touched seemed to turn into a steaming mass of flesh and rawness. Lances had pinned men to the ground and to each other. Writhing there on the ground, screaming in a foreign tongue, Rowlett saw a man try and fail to pull the lance from his stomach. He pounded on the thick wooden pole that passed through him into the earth to no avail. A great gush of blood suddenly plumed from his mouth, and Rowlett knew his death would come soon. 
Rallet fought the urge to pass the desperate man. He swung off La Loop. He walked over and swiftly slid his sword tip through the trapped man's neck and spine, killing him instantly. The Turks were dying in droves, and the night seemed to be rolling forward with no issue. Rallet remounted and spurred Le Loup towards the front line and the fight. He joined his countrymen, but something, something wasn't right. The Ottoman infantry was getting torn to shreds, but for some reason they were not retreating. In most battles, when the infantry found itself face to face with the Western knights, it turned and fled. But not this time. Instead, they silently stepped back up the slope. No panic, no fear. This was a dangerous maneuver for the best troops, and now Sultan Bayezid's men were doing it. Rowlett had seen the enemy and knew what they could do, but he had yet to run into the Sultan's men. The army of the Thunderbolt an army that could appear a mere four miles away in a day and deploy in deathly silence. An army that seemed somehow content to stand still and get slaughtered, if that was the Sultan's wish. An army that should have known it was losing, but didn't. And then Rowlett saw it. The sun broke upon the armor of the Capiculu Sepais like the sea at dawn, both beautiful and blinding. A brilliant, shimmering light came and went like a breath. From the crest of the slope and on either flank, Bayezid the Thunderbolt's trap was sprung. His best heavy cavalry clamped down on the knights like a vice. From both sides, the exhausted, dehydrated French knights now had to face the eastern version of themselves. As they tried to deal with the new situation, the Ghazis and infantry they had been chopping up shifted position. Suddenly, the Sultan's elite janissaries surged to the front and took up the ground fight. The turn came quickly. The center of the Allied line shuddered and then collapsed. At that moment, the sweeping Sepai cavalry began to roll up the flanks of the Western Army. Rowlett could see what was happening, and to his eternal shame, he ran. He spun the loop around and bolted for the safety of the now defunct fence and beyond. Over mounds of dead Turks they sped, jumping or plowing as needed. Once past the fence, Rowlett looked back to see what was left of the fight. Then he saw the closing Akinji. They had been waiting. The whole thing had been planned, a grand trap. The light cavalry screamed and sped to cut off the knight's retreat and to harass the allied infantry. Rowlett was now in a race with the giant pincers to his left and right. He had to beat the much lighter, faster, fresher Turkish horsemen if he wanted to survive. And he didn't think he could. The loop seemed to understand the situation. The mighty warhorse put on a burst that defied his dimensions. The man and rider, both exhausted, urged each other on silently as the jaws of the trap around them closed. 
a screaming Akinji warrior sped towards them, firing arrows that bounced off Rowlett's chest inside. Another rode straight at Rowlett with an axe whirling above his head. At a gallop, the two men traded blows, Rowlett's first swing having the Turk's shield, the second split the Turk's head. This was a moment when Rowlett thought they might have made it, and then the dam burst. The Allied infantry that had been looking on and looked so solid only moments before dissolved and fled back for the safety of the Danube. Any chance Rowlett had of reaching them was gone. Rowlett could see the Hungarian king, Sigismund, screaming at his men to stand and fight. It even looked like he was urging Rowlett to ride faster. The fear was complete, though, and the king could not stop the mass exodus around him. Panic is no different than any other plague. The only way to stop it is to let it exhaust itself. Rowlett was not going to make it to the river, and even if he had, neither he nor Leloup were likely to float. He would surrender and hope to be ransomed. There was a reasonable amount of money in his father's vault. It might do the job. Rowlett pulled up on the reins and patted the loop to let his companion know that the fight was over, but that he had done well. Rowlett reached up and removed his helm for the first time all day. He felt he could breathe. He took a deep inhale of the fresh, crisp air. It felt clean. Tasted a little strange, though, like copper almost. Rowlett unbuckled his gauntlet and threw down his glove to finally wipe away the sweat from his brow. He swiped at his dripping lips with the back of his hand, and the stain that came away was deep, burgundy, and bubbly. Rowlett looked down and saw blood pouring from his mouth, but strangely he didn't feel anything. Trying to figure out what was happening, Rowlett reached up to unhinge his breastplate. His left arm was there, but was doing nothing. Using his right arm, Rowlett searched for a wound, and eventually his fingers grasped the shaft of an arrow that had grown from the back of his neck. It was death, and Rowlett knew it. Before he could fully process his ending, an Ottoman sapai trotted over and almost gently pushed Rowlett from his horse. Rowlett crumbled onto the dusty, hard ground. Half immobilized from the wound and the other half too exhausted to move, Rowlett could only look on. His mouth was an odd mixture of slimy wetness from the blood and sandy dryness from the dirt. Unable to lift his head or turn it, he watched as his horse was led away. Moments later, the pale blue sky of a Balkan autumn afternoon went black. <laughs>